Aren't they amazing? <laughs> they are amazing indeed. They bring a lot of life to us, don't they? Amen. Throughout the New Testament, there's a Greek word that I can't really say in Greek because I don't speak Greek. I speak English. But it's the word anthropos. At least I think that's how it's pronounced. And throughout the New Testament, this word is translated sometimes... Now again, who am I to speak against the great group of people that translate into these various versions? But sometimes this word is translated, in my humble opinion... A little bit less than adequate. <laughs> Is that a nice way to say it? Some of our translations take that word anthropos and they translate it to be self. Which in the first, under, first century kind of understanding, and remember it gets kind of tricky with biblical interpretation because um, the Bible is written in Greek, but there's this heavy, 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 heavy influence of the Jewish culture in that so you've got this kind of collision of cultures with the scriptures you've got it in the greek language and then some of the aramaic was written too and then you've got this hebrew kind of culture behind a greek language and so you can kind of get the picture here in southern california when you have like people that speak spanish but they their family has lived here forever they're of hispanic descent their origin is from mexico but they've come here they lived here for several generations and they still speak spanish but they're very very american and they speak spanish and that's like what right and so if you see us like sometimes um we speak english but if we go to australia oh boy oh boy that's like a different deal right even if we go um to, to england and it's it's english but they joke with us and say you guys don't speak english you speak american uh, you know what I mean? So it gets kind of confusing. So you have this Greek word anthropos, which sometimes is, in my humble opinion, translated wrongly to be self. The root word there is human, anthropos. Where we get our word, you probably recognize it already, anthropology, right? So this word is more rightly translated in various places throughout your New Testament as human or humanity. Sometimes it's there to indicate the whole human race. Because in the Jewish understanding of that concept was very different than that which we would kind of look at our collective today. In American 21st century culture, we look at our collective as a collection of individuals, right? You're you, and you have to live out your truth, and you have to live your narrative, and you have to find your individual path in life, and you need to become an individual, productive human being, right? So it's very individualistic here as we kind of find ourselves. And so when we think of humanity as a collection of individuals, we then start to have a lot of discussions about my individual rights, my individual identity, and then when you and I in our collective kind of state as Americans or Southern Californians or people that go to this church or, you know, we're part of a worldwide denomination of 2.7 million people called the Church of the Nazarene, so sometimes you say Nazarenes, right? So it's like kind of this thing. But whenever you have this collective, it's kind of steeped in our American minds that we kind of look to ourselves first and say, my rights, my identity, my goals, my values. And wherever the group might differ from me, I kind of feel like sometimes we as individuals, we feel like we need to stand up for our own rights. Right? 
So if I stand up for my own rights and you stand up for your own rights, at certain points in our relationship, there's going to be collisions where my rights kind of infringe upon your rights. So let's say if you and I are out at a public park, and we're there, and you're enjoying your family, and I'm enjoying my family, and, and I, I have the right to play my music, and, 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 and there I have my, they used to call them radios or boom boxes or whatever, I don't know, my mini speaker or my something, right, my phone, probably, hooked to a, some sort of Bluetooth speaker and play my music. Well, what if my music and the, my right to play my music in a public space infringes upon your right to have quiet and silence? So how do, how do we do this? Usually it's creating enough space in between us to where you have the space to enjoy your silence and I can enjoy my music. But there's this collision of rights. And right now, all across our country, we've emphasized our individuality more than our collective. Okay? And as we've kind of done that, we've, we've seen a lot of things take place. We've seen a lot of families divided. We've seen a lot of friendships break up. We've seen um, people leave churches. We've seen pastors quit. We've seen all sorts of things happen because of my rights, right? Something interesting about our Constitution, right? Our Constitution, if I'm understanding it correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not, I don't have a degree in constitutional law, okay? But my understanding of our Constitution is it is based upon inalienable rights, Rights that, by the framers of our Constitution, it was assumed that because we're human, we have these rights, right? They were rights given to us by our Creator. And they were not created by our Constitution, but recognized at by our Constitution. That's a big difference. See, all right, we, when we say, that's my constitutional right, what we're really saying is, the Constitution creates that right for me. It was never intended to do that. The Constitution recognizes your rights that were given to you by God as part of the anthropos, as part of humanity. So instead of looking and saying, well, I'm going to stand up for my rights, and I'm going to go to the Constitution for that, and I'm going to go to the Bible for that, and I'm going to go to all sorts of things for that, what we really should be doing is looking at the collective and saying, how do we all best get along? So in times of a pandemic, in times of economic crisis, in times of political upheaval, somebody or some group of people must stand up, take a big old deep breath, put their individual rights to the side for just a brief moment, and ask the question, what is best? What is best for the community? What is best for the human race? What is best for all of us? Now, it doesn't even take a Christian to do that. And I know that maybe you're saying, how dare a pastor say that, but it really doesn't. You see, secular humanist, materialist, atheist will say, morality should be based upon the highest level of good for the highest number of people, and as a collective, we move in that direction. And so Christians will be saying the same thing, that God gave us these rights, and we have these rights as humans, and we should be looking for the benefit of the whole. That's a Christian idea because God gave it to us. 
a secular idea is we should be doing the exact same thing because we're all human and we have all evolved to the point where we realize that we will all benefit from getting along <laughs> and that a corporate benefit is much better than an individual mindset. So if both secular humanists and Christians are coming at this thing and saying, we really need to do a better job looking at the collective, well, who's going to do it? Is the church doing that right now? Is our secular humanists, are they doing that right now? People that don't believe in Jesus, people that don't believe in God? Well, I want to say something to your credit. It's been a, such a joy to pastor this church throughout this season of the last two years. With all that make up from 2020 through 2022, it's been a joy to be your pastor. Why? Because I think for the majority, as a whole, each and every individual is doing a wonderful job, or you're fooling me, either one, of taking a big deep breath and saying, what is best for our church? Bravo to you. I would assume that you're doing that because you have your eyes on Jesus. I would assume that you're doing that because you're living up to the challenge that I'll pose to you at the end of this message in a few minutes. But to get us to there, we need to start at a different point. And I want to bring you to this quote that I believe I put on the screen. Go to the next slide, please. Our old nature, and that is, when the, we talk like that in Christian terms, we mean our natural inclinations and appetites prior to coming to Jesus, okay? So that's our, our old nature. Our old nature values its own rights and its own ways, uh, oops, above, above, <laughs> above all else. That's our old nature. Left without Jesus, you and I are probably going to focus on ourselves. There might be moments where we say, okay, I'll set that aside and do what's best for my children or my wife or this or that. But somehow, either as an atheist not believing in God or a Christian walking with God through Jesus Christ, at some point we have to realize that I have to put the group's needs, the human needs, the collective needs above myself, but I'm going to have to fight something. I'm going to have to fight what comes natural to me because what comes natural to all of us, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, what comes natural to you is self-preservation and self-focus and self-identity, self-actualization. So we're going to have to fight that. And you fight that in every relationship. All of us do, right? And we learn that at a very young age if we, have, if we grow up with siblings or we start participating in a team or we go to a class or we live in a neighborhood at some point, you know, when we were a kid trying to de decide what game to play, you know, if you wanted to play Cops and Robbers or you wanted to play uh, Mother May I or all those other weird games that we played outside because we didn't have devices, we had to go outside and, like, play. So what we would do is, let's say, because I, I always wanted to play Cops and Robbers. I don't know why, but probably because it involved, we always played it on bikes. Probably, that's probably why, right? And so, yeah, you're a robber on a bike, whatever. So if, you, if, so if I wanted to play that, I would stick my foot in, and if somebody else wanted to play Mother May I, they would stick their foot in. And if somebody else wanted to play, Simon says, well, they would put their, if somebody else wanted to play hide and seek, they'd put, so you, your foot would represent what game you wanted to play, and then you would play eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And if you won, you get to pick your game, hallelujah. We weren't sitting there going, well, what would be the best, and, and, and at 10 years old, you probably don't have the capacity to, to do this, but at 10 years old, well, looking at all of your different skill sets, what would game would really be played? I'm the only one with a bike, and so that's the only one I want to play. So, but you guys don't have bikes, so who cares? 
Like, we're not thinking like that as, as 10-year-olds. Because our natural ability is, I want to play this game, so how do I manipulate the group, or how do I win any, mini miny, mo so that I can play the game that I want? Somehow I have to get you to do what I want you to do. And we are naturally that way. However, Jesus, the main point of our message, next slide, please. Jesus provides a unity that is not possible if we follow our own human nature. So if I simply say, well, this is natural to me, so I'm going for it. Well, my natural inclinations and appetite will always lead me to be selfish. It'll always lead me to do that. Always lead me to be thinking about my individual rights, my desires. I'm at the public park. It's my right to play my music as loud as I want to, and I don't care if you want silence and solitude. I don't care if you're here to read a book. I don't care if you're here to just kind of listen to the birds, because I have the right to do this. And I'm going to fight for my rights. That's what we naturally do. I want to draw your attention to a couple passages of Scripture today. And if you do need a Bible, there are a few left on the, on the back seat there. But I do want you to follow along in your, in your Bibles. I'll be preaching out of the ESV. And if someone has something different, you'll probably be in the ballpark. First passage I want you to turn your Bible to, we'll be looking at briefly, is John chapter 17, and we'll be looking at verses 22 and 23, as we discover that we become one with each other and God by displaying God's glory. So interesting idea, where did I come up with that? Looking at John 17, starting in verse 22, we read this, follow along in your Bibles, please. The glory that you have given me, this is Jesus praying to the Father, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Interesting concept. God gave Jesus glory, and we understand through the first part of John that we, through Jesus, have beheld the glory of God. So the glory of God is seen in Jesus, and now Jesus is telling God, hey, what you've given me, the glory you've given me, I'm given to my people. He says that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you, or excuse me, I love them, even as you have loved me. So the first question then becomes, if this is this prayer about Jesus saying, Father, you've given me this glory, and it's the glory that is reflective of your nature, and so that I can then in turn display your glory to humanity. Now, Lord, those that have come to become my followers, I've given them this same glory. I have given them the glory that you've given me, that we may all be one. Now, what does this glory mean? First of all, the word glory in the New Testament, the root word there means right thinking. And I know, when you think something, oh, this is glorious, right? This is is a glorious cupcake with a piece of chocolate on top. This is glorious. This is a glorious morning, a glorious sunset. You and I usually think of glory to mean splendor and magnificence. And it is that. It is used that for that way in the New Testament. But it's a, it's a word that helps us understand that when we are thinking correctly, we can then rightly see and perceive glory. So if I get up in the morning and I'm grumpy because I have to get up in the morning and it, the sun's not all the way up yet and my coffee isn't ready yet and it's just, ah! So I'm thinking all like that, I'm probably going to miss the beauty of the sunset and the wonderful, wonderful cup of black gold that you receive from your coffee pots called coffee. So you will miss all that if you, have a, if you have a bad attitude. You will miss the glory of morning cuddles with your kids. Come on, somebody. 
morning cuddles with the kids are the best, right? And the after shower, after bath cuddles when they got all wrapped up in the blanket and you're in the towel and you got them. So good morning cuddles. You're, if you have a bad attitude, you're going to miss out on all of that. Morning coffee, sunset, morning cuddles. You're going to miss that. And you only will experience the glory of, God, glory of God in the sense that you are thinking rightly. So God, through Jesus, has given us the ability to think correctly and to then perceive magnificence and splendor. And Jesus says, I've given them this so that they can be one. So right thinking in order to perceive splendor and magnificence will allow us to kind of get on one page together. And in summary, that would be the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the glorious thinking of God. It's the glorious plan of God. It's the plan of God that is outside and above and beyond anything humanity ever would have come up with by itself. And so when you and I are focused on the gospel and our thinking is shaped by the gospel, how we understand ourselves, how we understand each other, how we believe what is best for one another, if we're all focusing on the gospel... We're going to develop a right pattern of thinking that's going to result in our ability to see the glory and the splendor of what it means to be in relationship with God. And as we see that, we will further increase in unity. And so God has given us this. But if you and I fall short, not to something negative or bad, it's a piece, but we fall short of understanding this idea of oneness and this idea of unity with respect to the glory of God being shared with us that will form our thinking, will form our ability to see splendor and magnificence and right and wrong. And as we come together, we will fall short if all we do is say, I'm saved and what you believe is what you believe. Which is majority of Christians in America think of the individual aspects of the gospel. The individual aspects of the gospel is you are alienated from God because of your sin. And when you recognize that fact and you recognize that there is absolutely no way for you to reconcile yourself with God because he's perfect and you're not, and you come to Jesus for salvation and you beg for mercy and he grants you mercy and grace and he cleanses you of your sin and he puts you in right relationship with God, that is a massive part of the gospel, but it's not the whole picture. But most of us settle in right there. Most of us say, well, okay, my sins are forgiven, um, I'm in right standing with God, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven, and it all is well with me, well, then I'm going to go to a church that I like, and I'll do the things that I like, and I'll find one that meets all my needs, and I'll find one that looks, smells, sounds like I want, and this is comfortable for me, and this is me and Jesus, and when I come together for worship, it's just like about me and God, and did I get something out of it, and me, me, it's just like us. And is the individual part of this important absolutely but don't just go halfway into the picture realize that as you are saved and as you are put right with God he intends for you to live that out in the community of other believers that's why the church is so important when our church did a study of several months study on the scriptures trying to understand why God instituted this thing called the church we realized that as we kind of put things together in Ephesians 2 and 3 and 4 and some stuff in Colossians and some stuff that Jesus said about his kingdom, we realized in summary God created the church because he was forming a community based upon the identity of Jesus. Well now, see that's a big 
That's a pretty big statement when you say, wait a minute, Jesus is forming this community, this body of believers based on the identity of Jesus, not on the identity of Pastor Paul. No, no, not at all. Not, not, not on your, what, what you think you want. Or back in the 90s when church leaders came, said, you need to come up with like this picture of who you want to reach, and then you kind of go after those kind of people. I, that was weird for me when certain Christian leader was doing that. And so we need to not fall short, though not belittle the individual aspects of this as well. Turning to another issue in another passage of Scripture, turning to Ephesians chapter 2, we begin to notice that our oneness is possible because Jesus has broken down the wall that divides. He did it. You know, we, we can't seem to be unified, right? We, we just can't seem to do it. We can't seem to get on the same page. I mean, we have a lot of problems in our culture right now, right? A lot of problems. And we have a lot of really smart people. Question for me is, why in the wide world can't America figure some of these things out? I mean, we've got people of supreme intelligence, but yet they can't fix the basic problems. And I'm like, well, why? It's not a, it's not a, an issue of resource. America's in embarrassingly equipped with resources. We have so much money in America, so much food, so many resources. We've got stuff that we, we waste more food than most countries even ever produce. I mean, we've got money coming, we've got money everywhere. You realize that California, I think we've got something, we've got something like a $97 billion surplus. California has extra money laying around. Think about that for a second. That's not a political statement. That's just a statement. California has extra money just lying around. What are we going to do with that? Not up to you and me. But we've got extremely intelligent people that are highly educated, have built wealth, have built businesses, have built corporations, Yet we can't figure it out. Why not? Because we're divided. Hmm. That's why. That's the whole answer. We can't figure out health care because we're just divided. We can't figure out the border because we're divided. We can't slow down the freight train of gas prices because we're divided. Plenty smart enough. Plenty of money plenty of resources we just don't fit together we are divided that's sad isn't it it's horribly sad so humanity can't seem to get this unity together in order to move forward money intelligence resources we've got it all but because we're so divided problems continue to spin out of control Jesus He's the only one that can really fix this. Notice in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, he has ended what we would call national separation. Verse 11, he, Paul writes this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, now Gentile means non-Jewish, so they were the Jews, the Israelites, right, the, that group, 
and then there was everybody else <laughs> from all the other nations. Now, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, those of you that are biologically not Jewish, right, called the uncircumcision. They were called the uncircumcision because they were out of covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, okay, um, and then the covenant became the covenant of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, and the 12 tribes of, of Israel. The sign of the covenant was circumcision, meaning that, and for those of you that hadn't dove into that yet, meaning as males, every child I produce is God's. That's why circumcision, by the way. If, ever you, if you're ever wondering, why would God make that the covenant sign? That is weird. From the outside, that's really bizarre. This is how we'll prove that you're my people. Um, can we come up with a different idea, please? That's uncomfortable. But if God says, oh, no, 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 this is the sign of the covenant because every human being that comes from you belongs to me because I've given you the ability to join me in the power of creation. Now, that's a responsibility, isn't it? So that, that's, that's why that is, for those of you that are wondering. So by what is called the circumcision. So there was the circumcision. Hey, we're circumcised. We're better than you, right? We're Jewish. We're God's people, right? Well, you guys are uncircumcised. That means you're out of covenant with God. That means your people aren't, aren't connected to God. You're our subhuman. That's what they would believe. Which is made by the flesh in hands. Huh. So going down to verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Jesus. Wow. So you were separated from God's people and you were separated from Jesus, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope without God in the world. That's what he told the non-Jewish people. He says, if you weren't a Jew, you weren't connected to God, you weren't connected to God's people, you were separated, alienated over there. Verse 13, but now in Jesus Christ, you who were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So it is no longer the Abrahamic covenant. Well, it was that. It was no longer the Mosaic law, the, the, um, the symbolism, which we talked about last week, right? The, the, all the, like the ceremonial laws and the kind of legal kind of stuff, but the moral law was there. So what had happened was, Jesus then says, when he took the cup and the bread on the night of his betrayal, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, right? And this is my body that was broken for you. See, now he's bringing everybody in. So what man could not do, even God's people leading up to Jesus thought because God had given them a promise that they can exclude everybody else. That was never God's intent. When you go back and read Genesis and study it in detail, you'll notice that when God makes a promise with Abraham, he says, I will turn you into a great nation to bless all other nations. It was never to separate. It was always to unify. Always. But like our human nature, God starts to use us for something grand, and we think we're something special. We think we're better than everybody else because God's using us, and God uses me and not you, so you just... But by the blood of Christ and only through Christ will we ever come to that place where we are unified enough to solve problems. It is beyond the human capacity to get unified to solve the world's problems. And finally, moving to verses 14 and 15, it says, For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in in place of two. There's that word anthropos again. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So see, we as Christians, we have no place in the argument of blue versus red. We have no place in that argument. We have no place to say because of my political persuasion, I'm going to disagree with everything that comes out of the mouth of the person on the other side. The Christian has no place in that. We have to look at what is best for humanity no matter who says it. No matter where it came from. What is right thinking that enables us to see the splendor and the glory of God? It is sad, 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 sad that we would take a border crisis and turn it into a political issue. That we have broken, hurting people needing help. Well, depending on who says it. If the person I voted for comes up with a plan, okay, I'm in. If the other person comes up with a plan, nope. Meanwhile, the people at the border would be like, can you guys solve your little petty little things here? Because uh, we would really like some help. Hmm. Young people trying to get an education. And it's 50000 a year to do so. Where's an 18-year-old going to come up with that cash? Will somebody please figure this out? So our young, bright, intelligent people can become educated and join the ranks of those of us that already are. We've got to figure this out. And the church can lead the way because I know you know why I know that? Because I see it in microcosm here. 